You want to act as though his blood wasn't shed? You want to act as though there's no cleansing power for sin? Really? I, I hope you don't want to do that because Paul gave the most severe warning. And he was, gave a lot of severe warnings in Galatians chapter 1 and said, you know, if you preach another gospel, you should be anathema. And when you break that down to its finest derivatives, you find incapable of being redeemed. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this opportunity to share your Word. Thank you for this great letter that John wrote, his first letter. Uh, and I ask that you would grant to your Holy Spirit to illuminate, to make clear in a brief way, you know, that this, these teachings from John. I pray you would open our hearts and our minds to the ideas as written in Scripture concerning fellowship, Son of God, revelation, so many things, what it means to walk in the light. I just ask, Lord, that you would just open this Scripture so that we, our hearts might understand it and we might put it into practice. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For today's lesson, we're looking at episode 47, The Value of Christian Fellowship. And this is in the Cultural Christianity series. Cultural Christianity. The Value of Christian Fellowship. I'm going to be reading from 1 John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 4 to begin. We're going to look at the entire chapter. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed, manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. We have seen and heard what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That's 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We can say one thing about the Apostle John. He excelled with the way he began, of course, under the inspiration of God. But both his, his uh, gospel and his first letter, of course, Revelation, second, third letters. I mean, he just begins so well. What was from the beginning? As in his gospel, he says, you know, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word, the expression, was God. And here he begins the same way. What was from the beginning? You know, I looked this up, and 
it can have a personal tone to it as to who, um, <clears throat> but really more closely, I think, to the to the Greek definition is what. What was from the beginning? We're looking at something more than a person. Of course, God is a person. We are made in his image and we are, we are people. God is so much more than we are. I mean, we can't comprehend God. Can't wrap our minds around who God is. And this is where John begins. With what was from the beginning. The, 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 what beginning? Of course, it's the beginning of creation. When everything began other than God. God is self-existent. He's eternal. He's outside of time. And so he's looking at God and he's saying what was from the beginning, what we have heard. The we, of course, is the apostles. One of the uh, signs of an apostle was that they, had, they saw the Lord. I mean, they walked with him for three years. They were taught personally by Jesus Christ that they had kind of a big foot up on understanding beyond so much more could be said about what God did in their lives. But here, it's we have heard. We have seen with our eyes. This is a physical thing. It's not a metaphor. It's not a dream. It's not a vision. It's not something pointing to, well, I saw. He, he, he says with our eyes. It was a physical seeing Jesus. What we have looked at and touched with our hands. I mean, Jesus was a reality to them. Unlike us, you know, we, in our mind's eye, in our imagination, we read the word, we see what's there, we, we understand the concept, we get the concept. This is not a concept for the apostles. I mean, they touched him. Stop and think about that for a minute. You know, they bumped into him, maybe they put their arm around him, maybe they shook his hand, maybe they gave him a hug. I mean, this is touching. Touching what was from the beginning. Something totally beyond anything created. Everywhere present, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all the relatives, all, all the, the, the beyond the ability to think, contained in a person that the apostles saw with their eyes, they heard with their ears, and they touched with their hands concerning the word of life. So we're talking about concerning the expression of life, the logos, the word of life. Logos, word, thought, being the expression of a thought or a message. And when it comes to Christ being the expression, his word is perfect, so we can read his word and we know that in the original in, in every word, in every thought, in every idea, when understood properly, when interpreted properly, when, when a person does the work necessary to look at it and, and understand it, and it's a lot of work, when a person does that, and when they're spirit-filled, and when they are filled with prayer, when God is doing what God must do for people to understand to behave properly, all of that, when we get the word right, it is, in, it is perfect. It can be perfectly understood 
when it's properly interpreted. It's not, oh, it's not a fuzzy, hazy, you know, in the gray area. That's not the Bible. Every other book, every other th- thoughts and intentions of men maybe, but not this book. And so Jesus is the expression of the written word. The written word is what he wrote. And he himself, as the apostles saw them, expressed God in human terms. So we could understand. The word concerning here, concerning the word of life, is encompassing all, all respects. It's like where all the bases are covered. It's all inclusive. Concerning, really. Now, we understand that as soon as you start to think about God, he goes beyond our comprehension. It's not really referring to our comprehension so much as Christ himself, as his written word, gets it right. He gets everything we need to know is in Christ as the apostles saw him and as we see him as they express him in the word. It's everything we need to know is in Christ. So that the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of salvation, whatever the doctrines may be that we're looking at or talking about, they are everything we need to know. They're perfect when rightly understood. These are really, really important points. As children of God, as those who are seeking to know the truth, who are seeking to walk in the light, understanding that what we need is what we have. And it's everything that we need, we have, when filled with the Holy Spirit and, and prayer. Paul at Corinth, you know, when he wrote in his first letter in the second chapter, he said, you know, when I determined to come to you, I, I determined to know only Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, he did not mean that literally, that all he needed to know, and all he was going to proclaim was the name Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's not what he meant. What he meant was he would never deviate from the gospel as it was proclaimed by Jesus Christ. And it it became the word. They already had all the Old Testament. All of the perfection of the word, he was not going to deviate. He was going to proclaim Jesus Christ. And the right Jesus Christ, the correct Jesus Christ, he was never going to deviate from that. That was his purpose, that was his plan. We're looking at Jesus Christ here as the apostles are pronouncing him. And we're saying that he was from the beginning, he is eternal, and they touched that eternal life. We're not talking biological life, we're talking about eternal life. Those are not the same. We're not talking about the body and this machine and how it works and there's all the psychology and our brains and our emotions and feelings and there's the physical element. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is not created life. It's essential life. It's eternal life that was from the beginning, that it was already there. It's always been talking about what scientists cannot explain. What's life? They can't explain it. They don't know what it is. How could a man, a finite being, properly express eternal life? Can't be done. Without the word of God, we wouldn't know anything. 
but God has been gracious to give us his word. Now, I want to move up in a step here. We're talking about this first, these first verses which say what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we the apostles have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word or the logos, the expression of life. And the life was revealed, we have seen and testify and proclaim. So they've seen the life, they've testified to the life, personal testimony, that's what the Gospels are, the book of Acts, that's what the New Testament is. So far as the apostles saw, heard from the eternal life, and they have what they testified. It's like courtroom. Get up, put your hand on the Bible, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, which they did by the power of God in writing the word, and testify to the eternal life as seen in the Son of God, the person of Jesus Christ. It's a proclamation. They testify like in a courtroom to what they've seen, and they proclaim it like preaching on a corner, or in a church, or on a mountainside. What they saw, what they heard, they proclaimed. He said, I proclaim to you also. Why? And the reason is laid out right here, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And that's where this chapter is, and that's where this book is, this letter, these five chapters. It's about the proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ, for fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, talking to the apostles now, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and then that includes all those who fellowship with them. Now, we can ask, well, they're dead, they're not here anymore. That's true. But the Word is here. His words are still here. I'm, I'm reading them right now. He's seated in the heavenlies, as Paul stated in Ephesians, we're seated in the heavenlies. We can't wrap our mind around that. We can't comprehend that. We're not outside of time, but God is. And God is in the heavenlies. And we're in Christ. And in Christ, we're seated in the heavenlies with him. Now, all of that's true. That's a reality for God. It's only true for us by faith that we accept that what God just said is accurate, a reality, and true. The apostles took all of it as a reality. It was a reality to them. By faith, we are called to do the same thing. So their fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is proclaiming this. He's leaving Himself out. The Trinity is complete. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But because the Holy Spirit focuses on the Father and the Son in humility... And in giving them the glory, that's what we do too. And we see that our fellowship, as expressed by John, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So there's joy in the writing of it. It then gets goes forward to all 2,000 years of Christian people who will hear and that church who will receive and we will be one fellowship, will be complete. The joy become, becomes complete when the church is complete. His joy was in writing. It was right then and there. Just as our joy right, can be right here and now as we join together with the rest of the church and primarily in Jesus Christ. He's the first. 
I mean, he's the, from the beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> he's the one they heard, the one they saw with their eyes, the one they looked on, they handled, the one they touched and felt. And he's the primary one to have fellowship with. He's almighty God. He's central. He's first. He came first. He's, uh, he'll come last. He's, he's outside of time. And he's the all-important one. And in this situation, our joy is made complete as we fellowship with him. Now, fellowshipping with him is getting the word right. It's getting it complete. And I want to use an example in this because this is very important. Viewing salvation, through it, viewing the gospel message through Jesus Christ takes salvation to the highest plane. Why? Because it's, it's accurate. Without Jesus Christ, you get nothing. Christianity is about a person. The person who was from the beginning. The eternal person. And then he becomes a man for the forgiveness of sins, to fulfill the plan, the whole entire plan. I'm not going to go into it right now. The plan of salvation for eternity. Bringing a bride to the Son of the living God. All of that. All of the, the doctrines of the Bible are brought to their highest plane when we see Jesus and we see him correctly. When we skew anything, we skew the message, we skew the gospel, we skew Jesus Christ in the process. When we're outside of fellowship, we're outside of joy, we're outside of completeness, things aren't working the way John is saying he wants them to work. The apostles proclaim to make them work in this first chapter. Now we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, where we're told, uh, as the English version says, the husband of one wife, but in the Greek, it's um, a one man woman, a one woman man, sorry. One woman man is very different than the husband of one wife. And now this is really, I know it's like you're going off topic. No, I'm not. We're talking about the gospel, and the gospel is proclaimed by John in 1 John chapter 1 is going to take us to another place very quickly. And I'm going to read quickly through it so you understand the context of this. This is the message, verse five, 6, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. See, now we're getting into the message. We're, we're moving from kind of an obscure picture of an eternal God into the message of the gospel that has to do with cleansing of sin. So when we touch any doctrine, like now we're looking at the prerequisite, the qualifications for an elder, and the elder is said to be the husband of one wife, or more accurately, a one-woman man, we want to know if we skew these things, if we wrongly interpret them, then we skew Jesus Christ and the message he brought and the gospel he, he accomplished. The good news of salvation. 
So is it the husband of one man? Well, no, in the Greek it's the, the, the one woman man. So his eyes, you know, a man can be married one time in his whole life and never be faithful to his wife. And he could be an elder and it can go in the dark rather than in the light. And he can be unfaithful all his life and no one will ever know it because he's hiding it in his heart and in his mind. He doesn't say anything about it. This is, he's not qualified, but no one can see it because it's in the dark. And people will take that scripture and they will crucify, and I'm using that metaphor in the worst way, crucify other Christians because they were married before and now they're not qualified to be in ministry. Well, they're wives. Now, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, is where I want to take us right now. In this context of men and women or having been married before, and this doesn't just include elders, but this is for people who are not even looking to be an elder. They're members in the church. They want to disciple. They want to live out their lives in obedience to Christ in every single way. And how they view themselves and who are they before God having been married or divorced. And what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 is, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And we're talking about the jurisdiction that the law has over a person, and he's saying it's as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So now we're talking about married and whether you can be remarried, and once the husband dies, she can be remarried. Now we're talking about the jurisdiction of the law. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So now we look at the jurisdiction of the law, we look at the boundaries of the law, we look at the sin that the law is pointing to and saying, okay, well, you married another man or you slept with another man, you're an adulteress. And then goes on in verse 4 and says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. This is not talking about a person dying and being freed in order to remarry. This is talking about the death of the person who becomes a Christian. Verse 4 makes that very clear. Therefore, my brethren, you, whoever you might be, husband, wife, man, woman, single, married, you were made to die to the law. Jurisdiction of the law, done, finished, over, out. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Wow, that's a big concept. So there's talking. he's talking here about death and life. What did Paul say, what did uh, Peter say on the day of Pentecost when it says that they heard this and they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And he was talking about the crucifixion of Christ. Peter said, repent. Turn from your sin. Call sin, sin. Understand who you are. Turn from it. And each of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, turn from your sins, be baptized. What's that mean? Placed into Christ 
As Christ died on the cross, you're placed into His death, you die. As He was raised on the third day in newness of life, His life, bringing up His life and all those who would come up with Him from the grave, having made them all alive in Him. This is the message of Romans chapter 7 as we're reading them. Death, burial, resurrection, newness of life. So what? Repent from your sin, be baptized into Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, new life. Brought back to life, but not your life, not my life, not anyone's sinful life, but the life of Christ. Now look at the cleansing, look at the forgiveness that we have here. In verse 5, in Romans 7, before we go back to 1 John, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of of the letter. I mean, are you getting this? I hope every listener here is getting this. That in a very real way, that we don't like feel, you know, but is no less real because it's real to God and who made it real on the cross and in his resurrection. This is reality. You struggling with sin? Struggling with pornography? Struggling with immorality? With jealousy, idolatry, covetousness? I mean, whatever the sin might be. Struggling with sin. You know what? There's death and the newness of life. And you know it goes way beyond even the, the fruit that we can experience in our life, but this is going to cleansing and forgiveness of sin. So when I read this passage just right here, and I said this is the message we have from him, and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the dark, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That cleanses is past, it's present, it's future, it's cleansing that is complete. Why? Because it's all sin. So when people do something, they probably, you know, I'm not looking at any particular person, and I can't judge anyone's heart. But when they just further this idea, the husband of one wife, and they destroy people with this ungodly, unbiblical doctrine that puts a person out of usefulness in the church because they've been divorced. They are denying the gospel that says that person is dead and resurrected in Christ and all that sin is forgiven. It doesn't matter like the woman at the well. I mean, do you really think the woman at the well could experience joy if she understood that the four men that she was married to and the one that she was living with and not married with too, that, that she would have had any joy to go back to that town and he told me everything that I had ever known about me. If her sins had not been washed clean, she didn't understand that it didn't matter 
She had the joy to go and I see the Messiah. It was going to be made clear not too long in the future for her. And was that all going to be lost and taken back because she was married four times and, well, she's still in her sins? Really? Is that the gospel? To any man who holds that doctrine, who's taught that doctrine, you can find forgiveness for having done a very ungodly thing. Twisting the gospel and making it say something it doesn't say. What does it say? It says that we are dead and buried with Christ. It's forgiven. It was put on Christ on the cross. You want to take it back? You want to act as though his blood wasn't shed? You want to act as though there's no cleansing power for sin? Really? I I hope you don't want to do that because Paul gave the most severe warning. And he was gave a lot of severe warnings in Galatians chapter 1 and said, you know, if you preach another gospel, you should be anathema. And when you break that down to its finest derivatives, you find incapable of being redeemed. Incapable of being redeemed. You should be cursed, anathema. If you twist the gospel, he said it twice in that one, two verses, right there in Galatians chapter 1. This is something you just really don't want to do. You're skewing Christ. You're skewing the gospel of Christ. You're skewing the word of God. I mean, this is bad. This is why when he's talking about Pharisees, he said, I wish you you could just be totally cut everything off. Not just circumcision, but just cut everything off. I want to be too graphic, but this is what he did. This is what Paul did in the word. That's how much he hated false prophets, Pharisees, people who put other people under the law and who skew the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not do that. Jesus suffered far too much for us to do that. So as we we look at this section, we understand that getting the gospel right is more than Jesus died on the cross and he was raised on the third day and if you confess your sins to him you can have newness of life isn't this great this is the gospel that's not the gospel that's a little piece of the gospel that may be the the gospel partly in summary but the gospel is from Rome uh, Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22 and all the doctrines and all the teachings contained therein And skewing one can skew all. Very quickly. I just showed you from Romans 7. And from 1 Timothy chapter 3. You take a little thing about what qualifies an elder and you can just destroy the gospel and people in the process. You can be a stumbling block for which Jesus said, you know, it's better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and you're thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's something we really, really need to take to heart and not do. Now, if you're getting this wrong and you're really struggling with the idea of a husband of one wife, look it up in the Greek if you can. Go to Bible Hub, turn it into the blue, and go over to you know, NAS, NAS uh, and, and, and give you the Greek, and then you'll you find that it's a one-woman man. Uh, one-woman man. And that's certainly not teaching that we're still under the jurisdiction of the law. Now, having go- said all of that, I want us to read from 1 John chapter 1, 6 to 10. 
again and go into the, the main purpose of this portion, which brings us to the main purposes of the letter. This is the message, verse 5, we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, partnering with him, becoming one in, in the business of God's kingdom, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light, the contrast here is between walking in the dark and walking in the light. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, there was nothing ever hidden about Jesus Christ, ever. There never could be. There never was before time in the, in, in the infinite future, nothing ever hidden, nothing ever confused, no lie only the truth. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, when you see Jesus, you see Jesus in the light. You see him for who he is. He never, ever, even before Pilate, he never denied he would walk away and he wouldn't want to take any glory to himself and he hadn't understood he was going to the cross and he was taking the sins of the world on himself and so he wasn't proclaiming himself king. Don't do that. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. He kept it under. But when he was confronted and Pilate said to him, are you a king? You know, for this purpose I came. He didn't hold anything back. He wasn't hiding anything. There were things he didn't want said. Just like in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The, the, the private things belong to the Lord. The things revealed belong to us. So whatever in the scripture, what God wants us to know, that's there. He's not constrained by anything to tell us everything. That's not what this is saying. It's saying he doesn't hide anything. He doesn't lie about anything. Hiding in the sense of lying. He tells us what we need to know, and he's this divine, sovereign God, and upon his will all things shall be done and accomplished. And so that's where we are right here. He walked in the light. He hid nothing. We have fellowship if we walk in the light as he is in the light, as he himself is in the light, always telling the truth. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You've got to walk in the light. You've got to get it right. If we say we have no sin, now this is the completion of this chapter, and this is the other side. If we say we have no sin, he's talking about telling the truth. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. <clears throat> no person who comes to Christ, even though every sin past and future until their death, until they're resurrected and they're brought into the presence of Jesus Christ. Until that time, all of that sin is cleansed away. But even though it's all cleansed away on the cross and it's all forgiven, it's, that's not to say that people don't sin anymore. Obviously, we're in a sanctification process. We're not perfected and we're capable of sinning. We're capable of lying. We're capable of idolatry and covetousness and immorality and all those things that the Corinthian church expressed so well by sinning so much. All of that, he's saying, if we say we have no sin, 
We're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Fellowship is cut off right there. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Present continuous tense in the Greek. Go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That cleansing is not in the in the judgment room of God. It's not what took place on the cross of Christ. That is in our conscience. There's two elements going on here. There's a jurist, there's the, the judgment. There is what goes on in the courtroom of God, and there's what goes on in the courtroom of our own heart and our mind and our conscience. And he gets to that later on in this letter. So he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and go on cleansing us from all righteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's two things. There's <clears throat> if we say we have no sin, like right now, like I, no, I'm I'm good. I, I'm not. I haven't. I'm not sinning right now. Or if we have not sinned, in verse ten. We make him a liar. There's two people here. There's the person who's a true Christian who needs to walk in fellowship and in the light and in the truth. And there's the person who just says they're a Christian and they deny the fact that they ever had really any sin. Maybe with their mouth, they say, oh, I, I need forgiveness from Jesus. And, you know, they want to rush right into, you know, I'm saved, I'm good, I'm okay. And when the reality is they're not born again, they haven't repented of sin. There's no reality to their words. It's just in their heart. There's just, it's just words. So uh, John here is, is, is putting all of this and bundling it all up in darkness and light, in truth and lies, in deception versus walking in the light. The one who walks in the light has fellowship with Jesus Christ. And such a person is not required at certain times, maybe, but there is the going to God and finding forgiveness. Then, as led by the Holy Spirit, there may be sharing that as God leads, because we can become a stumbling block to people by sharing uh, about things that we're going through, or we may heap on ourselves unnecessary judgment from people who can't handle it. You know, and but in a safe environment within the church, where it's actually meant to be shared, once it's all cleansed before God, so that if there, a stumbling block does arise, it doesn't matter because God forgives me and I'm good with God, no matter what you may say or think. And when I say you, you know, that goes out to anyone who might be off track and not understand the, the impact and the reality of the gospel. So escaping the darkness is what we, what we want and what we need to do. The revelation of life is the eternal life which was with the Father and is revealed to us. And that life is an expression of forgiveness, mercy, grace, love, unconditional love, where all the sins of the people that Christ forgives, chosen by the Father, John chapter 17, given to the Son, and the Son takes them and he dies for them. And all of the guilt and all of the eternal punishment 
is placed upon Christ on the cross. So as he hung there, he, he felt the full weight of guilt and penalty and pain that would be brought for an eternal punishment for those where, who are not forgiven in such a way. And they go into hell fire for all eternity. In this case, they're placed upon the Son, and there's the love of God in the forgiveness of sins. All people deserve hell. I can't tell you why one person is chosen and one is not. All I know is that's the divine sovereign will, and we have absolutely no right to question that at all, in any way. God should never be questioned. When we say, why, Lord, when tragedy comes into our life, a loved one is lost, whatever the tragedy might be, and I I understand the pain of that. I understand the demonic spiritual warfare in that. I understand the world and the flesh and, and how, how could you let this happen? There's two ways of asking the question, why, Lord? There's the way of asking it, how could you do such a thing, which is heresy, it's blasphemy. It's the words should never cross our mind, our heart, our soul, or our lips. Because the God of all the earth shall do right. Every person who lives in the earth, who is born of the seed of Adam, is wicked and deserves eternal hell. And to ask the question, how could you let this happen, is to deny our sinfulness, our wretchedness, our wickedness. We deny the gospel. Any person who does and thinks such a way is denying the basics of the gospel message and beyond the basics. We do not ask such a question to blaspheme God. We can say, Lord, why did you let this happen? As to say, for what reason do you want it? What do you want to change in me? We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. All that takes place in our everything that takes place in life is for this purpose. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. What purpose is that? That, that we be conformed to the image of Christ. Some of that con- conforming, some of that being transformed into the image of Christ goes through a very, very painful process. I get it. I, I get it. I know what it is to, to lose someone you love very much in death and you can't see them and you can't touch them and you can't be with them anymore. I get it. That's not a reason to blaspheme God. Not as a sinner standing before Almighty God. And all my sins have been cleansed away. I mean, they were gone. There's no fear of judgment. There's no standing before Christ and having them revealed because Christ paid that price. The worst thing that I could do or any Christian could do would be to blaspheme God by questioning his reasons for doing things in our lives. What we do as Christians and how we enter into fellowship with God is we escape the darkness. 
the darkness there in, in the Greek is a brand of, of moral, spiritual obscurity. It's in, it blocks the light of God when faith is lacking. You hear that? It blocks the light of God when faith is lacking. It, it puts a person, born again and regenerated as, as some of us are, into the dark. Paul wrote into the sec, to the Corinthians in his second letter, which is really his third letter, but in, in chapter 4, 3 to 5, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, small g-o-d, the devil, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the true God, through the glory of Christ. For we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus, our Lord, and ourselves as slaves on account of Jesus. That's the true prophet. The Antichrist doesn't preach Christ. The Antichrist preaches himself. He seeks to bring people into bondage to him. He twists the gospel. He skews the truth of the gospel. He turns light into darkness and truth into a lie. It's all about deception. It can be done in such subtle ways. Practicing the truth is about being an authentic Christian. It's about transparency. It's about openness and honesty as Christ and the Holy Spirit would allow and would lead. Authentic fellowship, authentic fellowship with Christ means we no longer walk in the dark. We no longer skew the truth. We no longer block the light because of a lack of faith. I mean, I understand that none of us are perfect and we don't walk up to the measure of Christ in these things, but we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Authentic Christian fellowship demands transparency with Christ and as led with others. Authentic Christian fellowship demands transparency with Christ in truth and with others as God would allow. If we walk in the light, we experience complete cleansing. If we walk in the light, we can experience, by faith, complete cleansing from all sin. Past, what will be future, and even in the present as we confess sin. Now, confessing sin is a fairly important part of this process. To deny our sin. Now, here's where prayer comes in. I don't want to leave prayer out of this. It's so important because we're talking about fellowshipping with God. There's no fellowshipping with God without prayer. Forget it. It doesn't happen. There's no fellowshipping with prayer with God where sin remains. And more than that, where it's denied. I'm talking about not something that we're not aware of. I'm talking about something the Holy Spirit speaking to the conscience of a Christian and he's saying, this is sin. This is sin. This is sin. Stop it. 
Let me lead you to the cross of Christ, what the Holy Spirit always does. Let's see Jesus. Let's see the power of Romans chapter 7, for example. Let's see the power in Ephesians chapter 3, for example. Doctrine, theology, the, 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 the Holy Scriptures, portion after portion after portion, made clear to us for what? For victory's sake. So that there can be cleansing through theology, rightly understood, right, rightly understanding the Bible in truth, and we can experience the forgiveness of God on an ongoing basis. And so we go from First John chapter one, where acknowledging sin as soon as it comes up, as quickly as the Holy Spirit makes it known, or our conscience does. And we reflect on these things so that we can go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. These things I've written unto you so that you don't sin. Now this turns sin, and it overturns sin, and it turns failure and sin and wickedness, and it overcomes, and it becomes a reality of not sinning. He's not writing these things to give us permission to sin. He's writing these things so that we will not sin. And this is the value of fellowship with Christ in prayer. And this is the value of fellowship with the body of Christ, as we are led, in in a safe environment to make these things clear and known. We do not find forgiveness of sins from people. Do not misunderstand the text. We find fellowship with people and transparency. We only find forgiveness of sins in Christ. And that's something that happens and begins and ends in prayer. You have to understand this concept. If you don't spend time, and my suggestion is to spend time in praising God. I don't like to put it down to it has to be done this way. Look, you you pray as you're led. But I have found personally, the beginning with me is not the best place to start, even if it's in confessing sin. Something that sometimes it's so neat, I got to tell you this, God. Okay. But beginning in the place where John begins, you know, with that which was from the beginning is the best place to start. Eyes on God, eyes on worship, in the context of forgiveness of sins, of the gospel of Jesus Christ baptized into Christ, raised from the dead, this picture of glory of what Christ accomplished on the cross and what he fulfilled and brought up from the the grave in his newness of life. You know, praising God for so many things, not just that, not just that gospel portion uh, of uh, the cross, but, but also praising God in every way as God might lead you on any given day, praising for the extent of his glory, the extent of his person in his infinite attributes, in which he knows all things, and he's good in that way. That's how good he is. How, How big he is, that's how good he is. How forgiving, how gracious, how merciful, how kind. I mean, I'm talking about praising God in prayer and going from this exhilaration of seeing God in 
glorying in His greatness, going from that place to where we need Him on the cross. Where we have to find Him for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection from the dead. And so everything is cleansed away and so we can have pure fellowship with the living God. And in that pure fellowship with the living God, we can, at the right time, have fellowship with others. Without this fellowship, there's no salvation. If this salvation, if this kind of fellowship is not existing in your life, I dare say, if it never exists in your life, well, there's a huge problem. And the huge problem is you're not, you're not in the kingdom. Doesn't matter what you think about it. Doesn't matter what you feel about it. Doesn't matter what you've been told by people about it. You're not in the kingdom. Because the kingdom is about people who talk to God and they talk to God in prayer. My father's house shall be a house, shall be called a house of what? Prayer. Not teaching, as important as that is. It's not a, ha- it's not a schoolroom. It's a house of prayer. Why? Because without talking to God and without fellowship with God, there is no salvation. It's personal. It's regenerative. You, uh, your, your heart is made new. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Without that newness, there's no salvation. There's no fellowship. There can be no fellowship. God does not speak to the lost in an intimate way, in the way he does to those who are his children. He speaks judgment, sin, righteousness. The Holy Spirit comes and he brings Jesus Christ to see him who he is. And when he's rejected, because people are too proud, because they're unwilling to acknowledge their sinful condition, they are rejected and they go to hell. This isn't my plan. This is the plan of God. And it's righteous and it's holy and it's true. So prayer is key, personally and corporately. And we'll get into that in later sessions, later later episodes from 1 John as we continue to look through this cultural Christianity. And Christianity is not cultural. Christianity is in the Word. Christianity is based in the Word. It's unchanging. It cannot change. God, any more than God can change, and God doesn't change. So we don't care about cultural Christianity. We don't care about how the devil skews the gospel message. What we care about is that we don't skew it, is that we get it right. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that we get it right. I hope you get it right. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for the my hearers, my listeners, whoever they might be, I pray that you would open their minds and their hearts to the truth. I pray, Lord, if they're Christian people and they're, they've entered into this relationship, whatever they might be where they may be in the dark, I pray that their hearts and their minds would be touched with the reality of an unchanging gospel that cleanses away all sin. I pray that that reality would bring them into your fellowship with you more readily, more consistently, more often and longer. 
that their prayer time would be something that would be exciting, exhilarating. It would turn prayer into supplication where emotions and the whole person is involved. And they're lifted up to a higher plane. This is what is necessary. This is what is needed. This is what every Christian person needs to hear and experience. It needs to be produced in their life and they need to practice it. Lord, may this become part of my hearers experience. I ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.